if you've ever listened to a podcast or read one of my books and thought, I wish I knew if that was the right thing for my body, or how could I make that work with my schedule and responsibilities, I've got something for you. A new workbook by me coming out late spring. My Perfect Movement Plan, the Move Your DNA all-day workbook, is for your specific situation because you are going to finish writing it. When you're finished, you will have a guide to a personalized movement diet that nourishes your body in the ways that you need it to. My Perfect Movement Plan is available for pre-order now, and if you pre-order from the publisher, there's a bonus, a free ticket to an upcoming online workshop, Spot the Missing Micronutrients. It's a 90-minute class where you'll learn about five often missing movement micronutrients, and these are subtle movements of the body. In this case, we'll be looking in the shoulders and the hips and the feet that are often tied to pain or injury in those areas. In this workshop, I'll also show you how to supplement with exercise vitamins. I'm putting air quotes around vitamins and how to adjust your regular movement so exercise supplementation isn't as necessary. Pre-order now at mpmpbook.com. That's my perfect movement plan, mpmpbook.com, and you'll automatically receive a bonus class ticket. But wait, there's more. Um, I'm going to be drawing three names from these pre-orders, and these peeps are going to get a small group session with me to go over your perfect movement plan. So you can ask me questions, and we'll brainstorm your specific situation on a Zoom call together. I cannot wait. So head over to mpmpbook.com for all the details on the book and the bonuses. Read through the frequently asked questions, order the book, get the class, and then get moving. I'm so excited to share this workbook. It's the missing puzzle piece you've been waiting for, and it's so very actionable. Hello, I am Katie Bowman, and this is the Move Your DNA podcast. I am a biomechanist and the author of Move Your DNA and seven other books on movement. And on this show, we talk about how movement works on the cellular level, how to move more, and how to move more of your parts, as well as how movement works between bodies and in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome here. Let's get moving. Friends, I don't know if this is happening where you live, but where I live in western Washington state, and in many places in the U.S., there's this resurgence in gardening. Just look at Instagram. I keep wondering why. Why now? What is it about these historic COVID times that has made everyone clamber for soil and starts and seeds? And maybe it's the free time right at the beginning of spring, or maybe it's this widespread uncertainty and insecurity when it comes to our health and our safety. The weaknesses in our food system are being revealed as the conditions they developed under are shifting, but whatever the reason, people are moved to start growing. Now, I promise this is not and will never be a gardening podcast. I am a newbie when it comes to working in the garden, even though I come from farming folk. This is and will always be a show about movement, but this show about movement also covers sedentary culture, and it's the sedentary culture container we are all trying to move inside of. So 
What is it about a sedentary culture that has our individual bodies moving hardly at all, while at the same time our footprint is distributed all over the globe? What we're all collectively experiencing now, the spillover of a virus to humans, how that virus is moving around the world, and how our bodies are able to handle being in a relationship with this virus also relates to how we move and how we don't move. Of all the systems humans depend on, it's the food system we all use multiple times each day. And for most of us, that food system is a sedentary one. When you consider how much we all used to move for our food, how little we move for our food now is sort of mind-boggling. The food system has always been critical, and yet not all of us are even aware of what the food system is, or we're just starting to learn about it now that there are problems with it. There are many people who have been working diligently to point out the flaws in the food system for the rest of us, including who is and who isn't being served well by the system, humans and non-human critters alike. I'm going to point you to some of those resources in the show as well as in the show notes. But today, I'm going to focus on this idea that moving your body more for your own food is the solution to so many issues and that moving a little bit more for what you eat can be started easily, no matter your physical or gardening abilities. On today's show, I have a new interview with Victory Garden historian Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith about the current gardening resurgence. Uh, Also highlights from our older interview in 2018 and an article I wrote last year called Grow Your Own Movement, as well as tips specifically on how to keep your garden moves sustainable for your body. And I'm also going to include an essay called Kitchen Movement from my book, Movement Matters, which if you haven't read or listened to, you should. So get your gloves on and get ready to get down and dirty with Gardening Movement. First up, I am talking to Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith. She is an author, educator, and advocate for a sustainable food system. She is University of California Emeritus. Dr. Hayden-Smith leverages the power of social technologies in her research as a historian to tell stories, share information, start conversations, and engage with a wide range of people interested in the food system. She believes in the power of gardens to transform the world. And I first interviewed Rose in 2018, and I'll be sharing parts of that interview where we discuss gardening, how to get started, the history of Victory Gardens, as well as garden movement tips. But I wanted first to get Rose's take on our current situation and what she thinks about how things are changing. Rose Hayden-Smith, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you for having me today, Katie. It's always such a pleasure to, to chat with you. Well, I could talk to you for hours, but I wanted to talk to you again specifically because I'm wondering if COVID gardens are something we'll look back on in history as we do victory gardens, these periods of time where gardening is different than it was just before. But before we compare them, can you define a victory garden in a sentence or two for our listeners who might be new to the term? Sure. Uh, Victory gardens were uh, gardens that emerged in World War I 
and World War II, not just in the United States, but in the UK and Canada uh, and many other countries. And essentially, they provided an opportunity for people to um, take pressure off the food system so that we could feed mobilizing uh, troops and allies, and also as sort of a um, a civic engagement, morale building, uh, and also a way to teach people how to grow their own food. So I've seen these increases locally, and I've been reading about an increase in gardening. And is that truly a thing? Are you seeing something similar? It is unprecedented in my 30 years or so of experience as a garden-based educator, the interest I'm seeing. I mean, we saw a lot of interest in the last economic downturn and also um, as a result of, um, you know, Michelle Obama was such a garden advocate. And we saw a lot of increased interest during that period. This is, in my experience, unprecedented. And I think we are going to look back on this as um, a period that was a turning point in terms of um, people embracing a gardening ethos And, you know, people are doing it for so many different reasons, right? They're anxious about the food supply. Um, A lot of people are doing it, you know, for climate change purposes. Um, People are using it, you know, for the home classroom. Uh, A lot of people are doing it just because it's restorative and to sort of connect with nature. But I I think um, there are a couple of things that are really interesting to me about this moment is it's not just gardening, right? I mean, people are baking bread, people are sewing, and this sort of going back to um, lost arts and embracing self-sufficiency, I think it's really significant. Another thing that is very different about this moment and that's driving it is social technology. And so in World War One and World War Two, you had these posters that were mass media that were encouraging people to garden and do food conservation and food preservation. And now we have Instagram. And one of the things that I like to point out to people is in our last gardening surge, you know, um, at, during this economic downturn in the late, well, what, about, about 12 years ago now, um, you know, Social technologies like Facebook were relatively new. And in fact, Instagram wasn't even a thing yet. And so the social technologies are driving this. So if you're on Instagram or Facebook, you're you're seeing images of people gardening and things like that. And I can also tell you, too, that um, my colleagues in the cooperative extension service who run master gardener programs, they're they're getting slammed in a really good way, with interest. What similarities do you see between Victory Gardens and COVID Gardens, and what differences do you see? And also, I don't necessarily want to call these COVID Gardens. I don't know if there's a better term that you've heard of or that has been. I, people have suggested hope gardens and restorative gardens, but I don't know if we'll look back on it and have... I'm not sure if they were called Victory Gardens even at the time, So those are my questions for you, if you would like to fill us in. 
Those are great questions. And so when this movement started in World War I, um, this sort of organized effort, they were initially called Liberty Gardens, and then they were renamed Victory Gardens. And then in World War II, they were also called Victory Gardens. So the parallel, the strong parallel I see between um, COVID gardens or pandemic gardens, whatever people are calling them, is is actually more strongly with World War One than World War Two, because World War One these um, programs that encourage school, home, community, workplace gardens, they really were driven in in part about anxiety about the food system, because um, the food system in World War One in the United States was not the way that it is now with um, you know a um, a now highway system and hauling food all over. It wasn't organized in that way. So that was a real concern. And also it was within the context of a time of great uncertainty where there was also a pandemic where there were not um, medical solutions in terms of therapeutic drugs, right? World War I, no antivirals, no antibiotics to um, to address this uh, influenza pandemic. So mm-hmm. I think you know lots of similarities with World War One. So I I think that um, I'm hearing all sorts of names of what people are calling them. There definitely is um, a, a movement of uh, a large group of people, you know, probably most frequently calling them victory gardens. I am also hearing pandemic gardens. And I would also say, too, that um, I've been chatting a lot with faith communities, right, who are are looking at this because there are a lot of churches that have land and places where, you know, gardens could be done. And um, the, one of the things I'm hearing from some churches is that they're going to be calling their garden efforts good news gardens. I've also heard hope gardens. And, and I think that um, it doesn't even matter what we call them as long as people are doing it to the best of their ability and moving forward out of this, that we provide um, the resources that people need to garden, any technical assistance that they need, that we help people overcome barriers in communities to gardening, you know, primarily being access to land, right? I mean, who who gets to garden? Um, it's, you know, in many ways, it's, uh, it's, it's, you have to have privilege, you know, to garden because you have to have land and you have to have resources. And so that's what I, my biggest hope, you know, moving forward is that we, we make this something that people can readily do and that we really make an effort to incorporate this sort of essential life skill education not just gardening, but a whole range of things, um, so that we are providing education for kids and spiraling it up the curriculum to adults, right? So that people can do this activity. What makes you hopeful right now? Well, you know, one of the things that makes me really hopeful um, is just the way that I'm seeing people not only interested in it, but trying to support one another, 
especially given the constraints, right? Oregon State University has this um, some really terrific online learning resources for vegetable gardening. So I, I'm just seeing a lot of interest, you know, through extension programs, and that and that gives me hope. There's definitely been a lot of seed and starter sharing as I'm just driving around my own town. I'm finding people are just putting their abundance out to just with signs free, please take it and plant. And that's just, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing right now. It's a wonderful thing. And I think also too, uh, it's raising awareness um, in a, a number of important areas, the whole situation. First of all, people I think are becoming um, much more aware about seeds, right? And uh, seed saving, and um, and that's a really important thing for people to think about going forward. That's a seed saving is a really valuable skill, and we should also be supporting, um, you know, organizations that are involved in that work. And then the the other thing too that I think it's really, um, you know, this whole crisis is giving people a better awareness of the larger food system and the people who work in it. And so you're seeing a lot of national news stories about workers in, um, you know, packing houses and agricultural laborers and grocery store clerks and, you know, the the people who prepare and deliver food. And I think that um, having an increased awareness has really um, also increased people's appreciation for those who work in the food system and the food supply chain. If someone wants to dive a little bit more into the food system and the people doing this very important work for every human, what are some of your favorite or most exciting growing or food system resources? Well, I like to read Civil Eats, which I think is really wonderful. There's another web-based publication that I really like a lot called The Counter, like a lunch counter, The Counter. I think those are very good. I would also say, too, I subscribe to The Washington Post and The Los Angeles Times, And the Los Angeles Times actually, right before the pandemic hit, even, you know, went back to a full-on sort of food section in print every Thursday. And those are publications, newspapers that I think are are doing, and there are many more, a really good job, um, you know, covering the food system. Also, Fern News. Uh, does a really excellent job of covering um, food system issues. Uh, and in fact, one of their reporters has been doing a very ambitious mapping project of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak in uh, meatpacking plants. Very good journalism mm-hmm. there. And you turned me on, I think it was you, to Food Tank. I signed up for their emails and I really love their articles. Food Tank is fantastic. And um, another thing that I love about Food Tank is they sponsor all these live events. 
And they're absolutely wonderful. They get so many different kinds of people in the food system to the table to talk about things. And then they also have really good written content. And um, so I am a huge fan of uh, Food Tank and have loved, um, you know, getting to learn from the so many different people that that they bring to the conversation. What about books? Have you ever read The Wizard and the Prophet? That that book really opened my eyes to so much of how how the world eats is related to what was happening in emerging science, you know, in the 30s and the 40s and I was wondering if you had read that and then also any other books like that, you know, that would just kind of give a a historical perspective as well as maybe some nudges down a particular path going forward. Well, I think that The Wizard and the Prophet is one of the best food systems books I've ever read, ever. And it just is such, does such a remarkable job of laying out the science and the history of that science, and also how government research has also been involved in in the food system and in what we eat. And that's one of my favorite books for the history. I've got, you know, so many books that I could recommend. And I have to tell you, I'd also recommend people, you know, pick up a copy of my book or, um, you know, see if their library has it electronically right now. Because it's it also contains a really good you know history of of the food system. There are uh, a couple of good books that I could recommend. Uh, you know, particularly about citrus industry and the rise of the citrus industry in California. And you know, there are just so many wonderful books. Michael Pollan's books are always relevant, right? And the sort of advice that he lays out. One of the most beautiful books that I've read recently is Braided Sweetgrass. Oh, yes, of course. And that is just such a credible um, book about ecology. Um, I am really looking forward to... Um, reading a book that will be coming out in June uh, by a woman named Catherine Alto. And um, Katie uh, writes a lot about the natural world and um, how people connect to it. Her last book, which was a New York Times bestseller, is actually about the sort of, um, almost like the, the botany and the landscape of Winnie the Pooh's Hundred Acre Woods. And this book that she's got coming out right now is actually about women nature writers. And, um, mm. you know, and I'm really excited to read that. And I, I think that that, you know, it's not really about food systems, but it's really about ecology, which I also think is you know, pretty connected. That is a great list. And we all seem to have a little bit more time to read right now. And I would just throw in one more. Another eye-opening book for me was Farming While Black by Leah Penniman. And we'll put links to all of these in the show notes. But just another really great book about the barriers to gardening, to nutritious food, and then all of the other things that come with that. So 
Thank you, Rose, for coming on again. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. And I would also say, too, about um, Leah Peniman's work. It's fantastic. And what she's doing and making possible in terms of also sharing knowledge about farming is absolutely um, inspiring. I find your work inspiring as well. And I thank you for coming onto the show and hopefully inspiring others out there listening. And I will connect you to them. And we look forward to what you've got coming next. Okay. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Rose. All right. That was Rose and I in May 2020. But I first interviewed Rose in 2018 for a show called Taking Action in the Garden. Here is part of that interview, which includes tips from both Rose and I on getting started in the garden. Thank you so much for having me. What a privilege to be here. I love this podcast. Well, thank you very much for listening. And just so you listeners out there know, I've known Rose for a long time. I feel like time has just maybe flown by, but I feel like we're somewhere like around 15 years, maybe 12 to 15 years was my Ventura time in California. Yeah, I would say at least 15 years. Yeah. And uh, I haven't aged a day. No. (laughs) (laughs) Neither one of us has. And I've been following your work for a long time. So I I knew Rose personally, just as someone who used to come move at our old studio there. But Rose is an academic and she has an amazing book, which we're going to talk about. It's called Sowing the Seeds of Victory, American Gardening Programs of World War One. I. I love academics and I love technical reading, especially when it's really accessible and not jargon heavy. So when I wanted to talk about action oriented items that get people moving in ways that they hadn't thought of it, gardening and food consumption is a big part of that. And so it just occurred to me that Rose, you have such a unique perspective on food, food systems that I just want to put your voice out here. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you again for having me. I'm thrilled. Before I left Twitter, your personal account, I don't know if it's your UC account, but you had this hashtag food observer. And I loved it because I feel like it sums up what I do. Like I'm a movement observer just as much as I'm a movement instructor. And I see movement and how it works everywhere. I see how various systems that are maybe off other people's radar as being movement related as related to movement. So what does food observer mean to you? Well, so that's really interesting um, about that question. So my personal Twitter handle is victory grower, which is a riff off my interest and passion for the victory garden movement and the radical notion that we should have gardens everywhere and that everyone should be gardening. So Food Observer is my account that I created for the University of California, uh, a digital platform called the UC Food Observer, uh, in support of the university's Global Food Initiative. And it's been really wonderful to be able to, as an academic, observe what's going on in the food system and basically curate content and then create original content that's designed to connect people with information and perspectives and ideas about all the topics that would involve 
the food system, not only in the U.S., but internationally, whether it's, well, you know, food touches everything. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're all stakeholders in the food system because most of us eat, you know, several times a day. And uh, it's political, it's social, it's historical, it's cultural, it's economic. Uh, food is involved in all of these things. Yeah, we had a guest on, Philip Brass, whose work with the First Nations in Canada, he has this statement where food is the, is the spine or the axis of a culture. And I just was thinking about that, that indigenous perspective as I was reading your book, because sowing the seeds of victory is really about using gardens as a political strategy, as a like a patriotic strategy, which I just thought was like, wow, that is such a unique ex- It was just a different perspective than I was used to hearing it. And it could be the circles that I move in, but gardening is becoming a thing, a new thing. And like, I have to just kind of laugh when I say that because- from the historical perspective of it's the opposite. It's We only see it as a new thing because of this brief window of human history where we haven't had, you know, each one of us pulling the food off the land, cultivating it or, you know, right. hunter gathering it in some way. I've seen gardening coming up in various magazines as a new way to get fit, just get in a garden and do these exercises. And I've seen farmers discuss starting farm fit programs to help people get complex exercise while helping them out with the labor that they really struggle to be able to do, especially on smaller farms. There's gardening as part of social justice initiatives. Like I'm thinking of Ron Finley and his personal stories. He grew up in a food prison. Growing food is like printing money is his statement. And then a couple months ago, I read there was Paul Quinn College and it was a financially struggling institution And they decided to give up their football team, rip up their football field and start an organic garden. I just want to read this to kind of set the complexity of what we're talking about. Nine years ago, when the historically black college on the south side of Dallas was in financial crisis and had a 1% graduation rate, a new president turned everything over, including the football field. There's more than one field of dreams, all right? Why should we tie everyone's future to athletic success? And when Paul Quinn College decided to convert its football field into an organic farm, eyebrows were raised, but the move symbolized the college's dedication to a team of a different kind, a team of individuals and organizations fighting to end food insecurity and injustice in the United States. Located in a federally recognized food desert, the farm has produced and provided more than 30,000 pounds of organic produce since its inception in March 2010. No less than 10% of this produce has been donated to neighborhood charitable organizations. The rest supports community members, the college and restaurants and grocers throughout Dallas. In addition to providing fresh, healthy, affordable food options for its surrounding residents, the farm strives to improve communities through the Metroplex by providing hands-on educational experiences for youth and adults alike to promote healthy eating, improved food access, and environmental stewardship. This is what I've seen in the last few years. Rose, what have you seen that convinces you that gardens have the power to transform the world? Well, I've traveled a lot, not only in the United States, but internationally. And gardens are a thing. And I think um, work like what Ron Finley's doing with the sort of um, radical nature of gardening in public or community spaces is really important. 
in the time that I've been working with gardens, we've seen the school garden movement just absolutely explode. And, you know, gardens are the first step right? So you get a school garden and then maybe you get a farm to school program and you get nutrition education in the classrooms. And so I'm seeing a lot of interest in gardens and a lot of interest in heirloom varieties, Mm -hmm. which I find really hopeful uh, in terms of people learning more about um, biodiversity and environmental health, and also, again, just sort of about food trailways. So I'm seeing a lot of interest in gardening. And, you know, I, I look for, at, you know, for example, at the Master Gardener program in the state of California, and there are like over 6,000 active Master Gardeners wow. in California out there, you know, working with communities. And these classes are packed across the United States, the master gardener classes are just packed. People are hungry for knowledge and people are also seeing gardening as a means of civic engagement, Mm -hmm. which I think is absolutely critical and wonderful. It's really collaborative. So hopefully everyone out there is feeling like, okay, I want to grow something or at least nodding their head. So we asked you to prepare three action items actions that we can take now to get them going with gardening in in some way, getting them in the garden in some way. So what is your first item? Well, my first item is to get started. And that can be a small action. And I am inspired by the victory garden models of World War I and World War II, not the war part at all, but the gardening part. Gardens were front and center everywhere. And so the first action I'd like people to do is to start gardening and to make the garden visible. If you live in an area where you can garden year round, garden in your front yard. You know, I had for a long time a raised bed at the top of my driveway. You know, start a garden in your school, start a garden on your median strip. For me, making it visible is not only a way to increase interactions with people about gardening and spark conversations, but it also is um, a demonstration of your commitment to garden. What was the motivation in the World War I and World War II programs to display your garden? Was it simply just to show that you were doing your part? Yes, it was absolutely. It was to, to show that you were committed, that you were doing your part, and sort of a, an acknowledgement of the collective nature mm. of the effort, yeah. which was really important. So I try to come up with a tip to match every one of our experts' tips. And I am not an expert gardener, as I said earlier in the show. But if you get our newsletter, my community movement challenge this last summer was to go out right now or at least sometime in the next week, and find out where your community gardens are already located. Maybe you have to look online. You maybe have to call your local gardening supply store. Find out where they are, what their address is, and create an event, either just yourself or with your family or friends, and create a community garden walk. Like actually get yourself into a garden. You don't have to do any gardening yet, but get yourself there by walking to your community gardens putting your feet upon that soil once you see them and are aware that they are there, 
maybe they're accepting volunteers or renting plots, you're much more likely to get some growing started. I agree. That's a, a wonderful way to do it. And the the knowledge and the expertise that's resident in community gardens is really helpful for people who might just be starting out gardening. And a fun fact here, I live in a retirement community and it's considered a low mobility area just because of the demographic. But we have low mobility community gardens, meaning the whole garden has been scaled up so that you can do it comfortably without needing to bend too much or if they're all wheelchair friendly. So if you are thinking about creating a community garden, remember you can diversify the shape of your community gardens to meet the needs of more people who might want to be coming out there. Okay, next tip. So my next tip is if you live in a part of the country where outdoor gardening is more challenging during winter months, I actually have two tips within this one tip. One tip is to try container gardening inside and maybe with herbs and greens. And if you're gardening with kids, you could make a windowsill garden. And that's really easy to do. You get a recycled Ziploc bag, put a bit of moistened soil with maybe some carrot seeds, and then tape it to a sunny window. And that's a really easy thing that you can do. The other thing that for people who are really ambitious is to pick up a copy of one of Elliot Coleman's books about sort of extending your growing season and the sort of gardening strategies and how-tos about how to maybe grow three seasons out of the year, even in climates that are colder. I like that. We are fortunate to live in this weird microclimate that's got a really long growing season, but there's a couple limitations that I hear people protesting is one is lack of space. So I think that your tip pertains not even to winter challenges, but space challenges, right? Like I can do all the same things that you just said if space is my issue. Absolutely. Container gardens are absolutely wonderful. And I always have a couple of container gardens going on, even though I'm not, I don't have terrible space constraints. And um, I think that the space is a big issue, but if, you know, you can make a container garden with materials that you probably already have around your home or that you can get at a thrift store or pretty inexpensively, but they're also the containers for gardens are becoming much more high tech. And I'm always amazed when I go onto a gardening website to see the sort of vertical tools that have been developed for people to grow vertically. And it's really amazing to me what sort of containers are available now to facilitate and help you adapt to small spaces. Those are great tips. I, I was just thinking too, I have a pretty big container garden, even though I have lots of space. Like I have, I use some of my land space, but I just like containers. Like I can only get tomatoes to grow in this region because I built a small greenhouse made out of trash <laughs> in the front of my house. And I find that it's easier for me to tend to things where I'm passing them already to get to other places. So I, my container garden is between me and where my washer and dryer is and between where I and my car is. So it's in a high traffic area and I just end up weeding small bits of time, watering small bits of time. So don't be daunted if you live in an urban setting or don't have lots of space. 
it's still possible. It is. And in fact, one of the best methods um, that I've used consistently over the years is the square foot gardening model, which is also a great model to use with kids. And if you're, or if you're in a classroom setting where everyone gets a square foot. But one of the things that I, I've always done with container gardens too is that the scale of it might be that for a child that's learning about responsibility, they can be in charge of a container Mm -hmm. garden. And that's also a a really rewarding exercise for them. Oh, I can just keep talking about your second tip. My second tip is just, I think sometimes there's two hurdles to overcome when it comes to gardening. There's overcoming the lack of knowledge or experience. But for many people, of course, I'm not a gardener again, and I'm like in a body world. People will say that, you know, they can't bend their hands don't grip very well, their knees hurt. So the idea of gardening, which is, it's a physical activity, feels out of reach. It's another hurdle to overcome. So I would say to learn some great gardening form, learn how to lift and carry well, learn how to bend well, learn a few hand stretches, how to play with your tools and your tool grip so that your time in the garden is not only nourishing you in the sense of the green space and the food that might come forth from it, but also your body is being moved well while you're doing it. I wrote a couple articles on this, and I will put them into the show notes, including a just kind of general how to bend well using more of your hips and less of your spine and knees. I will link to that so you can go practice it later. Rose, what's your final tip? Well, I'm going to come back to something that you said, which is a really critical point, which is that a challenge for people who want to garden, who maybe haven't gardened before, is information. Mm. And there's a lot of information out there, but sometimes it's hard to, to find. And I really want to encourage people who are interested in gardening, wherever they live, to visit their extension Master Gardener website. There is an extension Master Gardener program in every state, and it's even gone international now. And this was a program, it starts out at the USDA. It's managed by the land grant university in every state, and it sort of rose up as a result of the environmental movement. It actually started in Washington state in 1972 and just caught on fire across the United States. And you will find the best gardening information for your region, your climate, your considerations. And it's science-based. It's really, really wonderful. The websites are packed full of information. And then the Master Gardener programs also do helplines They do events in communities, at nurseries, at farmers markets to provide information and um, absolutely wonderful program. And then the tip within that tip is that if you have kids and you want to garden with kids, I really encourage you to run over to the Junior Master Gardener website. And the Junior Master Gardener program is um, run by my dear friends at Texas A&M University. It's an international program, and they have got 
books and tips and all sorts of things for gardening with kids and absolutely wonderful website. I guess my tip is somewhat similar, only there's less of a system behind it. And it's just find a mentor. It doesn't have to be anyone who's a master or you don't only have to have a master gardener. I have found for me, so like I would say that I, I probably mentor movement for many of you listening, but when it comes to all the other things that I want to do, I need someone who's already doing it better than me, more than me. And it doesn't have to be the person who's doing it the best. It just needs to be someone who has some experience or some tidbit that I can physically participate in. So when I say find a mentor, I usually mean that is a little bit different than like find an expert because a mentor is usually someone who you can move shoulder to shoulder with because sometimes when a person is doing the thing that they've figured out how to do and then they write about it, they're leaving out steps that they might not even realize they're doing. So I've just found like through great neighbors, I have a neighbor and I swear she's a master gardener. She says she's not. She says that she's just learned through trial and error, but she'll always come over and she's maybe five years older than me, but she kind of talks with the wisdom of someone who's 107. I found a bunch of winter squash plants that were already on a half dead, but I got them for almost no money at our local farm store. So I was like, I'm going to throw those in the ground and I'm watering them. And she just walks by and she's like, oh, squash hate wet feet. And I was like, you know, it's just like a little line of wisdom. (laughs) And squash hate wet feet is way easier for my brain to grasp a hold of than to try to memorize all the things that plants need. So there's like something to this just casual interaction. I mean, it's not a parable by any means, but there's these like little, they're like memes. They're almost like memes. And so I have found that learning for me has definitely been a hybrid of reading the books and the text and then having someone else filter five simple lines. And then if you have a community of people that each have their own you know, version of squash hate wet feet, then pretty soon I have this kind of strange reference system in my own head about what to water and what not to water. So find a mentor or seven who are all doing something slightly different in your area and see what happens. Uh, I think that is absolutely great. I learn more from other gardeners. It's amazing. And um, people come from different regions and and different cultural traditions. And people will also start giving you seeds, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful. And just talking, like if you are friends or you build friendships with various people, then I might not have to remember my chart of what to plant. You know, if I've got two friends who are gardening and they'd be like, hey, did you get your garlic in the ground? I was like, oh, right. Garlic has got to be in there in November. Totally forgot. But they did it. And so it's just these casual lifestyle reminders that fit into the flow of life. And so just like I have recently friended a fisherman who's going to start taking me out, friend some gardeners (laughs) and just see what happens. Well, Rose, I really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything else you would like, any other bits of wisdom or memes you would like to share with us before you go? Well, you know, if your library has a copy of my book, please go grab it. It's really an interesting book. It's got a lot, uh, you know, it's not purely history. It's also got my sort of seven political planks about gardening and the food system in there. And um, another thing, too, that is in there that I think is um, pretty relevant right now 
is I have a whole section on poster art and those wonderful, incredible food yeah. posters of World War I and World War II and propaganda. So, you know, the propaganda that was used to promote gardening in World War I and World War II was positive for the most part. But um, it's really interesting to learn more about those posters. Probably you've seen those posters online and to learn more about the history of those posters, like the Food Commandments poster, is really fascinating. You know, this book is such a great book. If you homeschool, especially, I mean, it's great for anyone, but if you are thinking about trying to do a food unit on the history of food, like there's so much nutrition and that's fine, but this is like, it's a whole different perspective. It's to really understand the food system and how we got to where we are today. But there's this poster, food, one, buy it with thought, two, cook it with care, three, use less wheat and meat, four, buy local foods, five, serve just enough, six, use what is left. And it just ends or concludes with don't waste it. And this is from 1919. And when we talk about like what we're spending money on as far as like trying to get education across and figure out what's the best parameters, these simple guidelines have been around for so long. And I don't know if we necessarily need to produce more guidelines or if we just need to start heeding the ones that we have. And I think that that change, that personal change in behavior is so much more challenging that a call for just, well, do we really need to buy it with thought? Let's do more research on seeing what thoughtful buying does. Like, I feel like we're in that loop of just wanting something that maybe is never coming that really mandates that we make certain or better choices for a food system and for all. So anyway, I highly recommend it. You can find more about Rose Hayden Smith at ucfoodobserver.com or on Facebook and Twitter at ucfoodobserver. And you can find Rose's book, Sowing the Seeds of Victory, American Gardening Programs During World War I at your local library. And if it's a keeper for you, buy a copy from McFarlane, who's a publisher. I love buying from publisher. Or of course, you can probably find it on Amazon. Yeah. Thanks for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to talking again and happy gardening. I hope you all get a chance to check out Rose's work and to start a little, how about the time is now garden of your own? The great thing about gardening all the time, and especially now when gyms and even some of our parks are close to us, is that you also get a lot of movement and green space time or nature time in the garden. That's what this next piece is about. Grow your own movement. I want to begin this essay, which is about getting exercise in the garden, by stressing that the idea of getting fit in the garden needs to take a backseat to the ideas fashioned and championed by Ron Finley of the Ron Finley Project. Ron Finley has a new masterclass being advertised on YouTube. Anyone, anyone, anyone know what YouTube is? And I recommend checking it out. It's all about how easy it is to get started growing something. His work specifically addresses those whose socioeconomic environment is a barrier to basic nutrition, fresh nourishing food, actual gardening space, and knowledge of how to produce food autonomously. I encourage everyone to watch the film Can You Dig This? featuring the Ron Finley Project to get an idea of the impact that growing things can have on a community, 
to donate to the project if you're able and to follow the Ron Finley project on social media. With Ron Finley's approach and ideas in the front seat, I, sitting in the back seat, believe it's also essential to point out that the dietary nutrients every body requires can be stacked, permaculture style, with the movement nutrients we also all require if we just grow some shit, as suggested by Ron Finley himself. Gardening is a solution to a lack of nutrition and a lack of movement. Two birds... One stone, do you get what I'm saying? I can imagine you nodding your head. Yeah, good, thanks. These days, many think of movement as a sort of penance for having eaten. It's a way to get rid of the food we have ingested. But what if we flip that notion on its head and see how movement is the way to get food? Movement, like the stuff we require is what makes the food we need. Right now, a lot of that movement is outsourced to farmers, laborers, and machinery, and we can reclaim some of that movement. We can develop a new relationship that frames both food and movement as positives. So garden moves, those movements found in community gardens, container and patio gardens, kids' gardens, indoor gardens, and backyard gardens, are squats, bends, pulls, lifts, carries— And smaller moves like picking, shelling, and separating that in the end are converted into food. And P.S. If you're more of a flower gardener than you're feeding pollinators, who in turn help feed all of us, so it's the same deal. The garden is an excellent personal trainer. If you're giving the garden everything it needs, you can't help but cross-train. So do you wish you could grow something but feel your body is too stiff or sore to get started? I understand completely And this is really why I do what I do. I like to show how we can use movement to target areas that don't move well. It's a bonus when you can relate opening up a new part of your body to opening up an experience you'd like to have, like how stretching your calf muscles can get you bending your knees in the garden with ease. I also have many friends and farmers who feel the aches and pains after a day in the garden. And even after all that movement, they still ask me for specific corrective moves to ease a spot here or there. I have videos of some moves in the blog version of this article, and you can find them in the show notes of this episode. Once you've learned to stack food with movement, you can add a third nutrient that I call vitamin community. Adding friends to your growing time meets another human need for what I'll quickly sum up as togetherness. You can read more on that in Movement Matters. Join others already growing or gleaning and stack your social and or volunteering time with your garden moves. Invite others to come work with you or ask someone else if you can help. We have local farmers here who throw weeding parties where they provide lunch and a green space for the kids to play in their group while the grown-ups catch up and talk about local issues and just hang out, getting our nature time, all while weeding. And did I mention there's always weeding? This is different than spreading the weeding moves over a body as using different positions and tools will do. This way of sharing the weeding work spreads the weeding moves over a greater number of the bodies that will benefit from this harvest. That's like six birds with one stone, which, yes, is a good shot, but it's also sort of gruesome. So I'm going to stick to the idea of movement permaculture instead. Thanks. 
Not every day can be a group gardening day, so if you're worried about being lonely out there, take me with you. Listen to more Move Your DNA podcast episodes or any of my three audiobooks because there's going to be weeding, friends. I'm just saying there's going to be weeding for sure. Next up are some tips on keeping your body feeling good while you're doing your gardening work, and they are from an article I wrote for Experience Life magazine called Cross Training in the Garden. Tip one, alternate your tasks. Do five minutes of weeding and then five minutes of watering and then five minutes of pruning and so on, cycling through tasks so you're not in the same body shape for too long. So it's like circuit training, but with dirt. Tip two, change your position during tasks. You know those stretches you struggle to fit into your day or those yoga poses you'd love to see off the mat? Try squatting or straddle standing, lunging or V-sitting while you're weeding. Tip three, mix up your grip. Hold the trowel with the other hand or reverse the way you stack your hands when shoveling to strengthen yourself on the left and the right. Yes, the job feels and might even be less efficient, but in the larger picture, it's not that efficient to work one side of your body a lot more than the other. Tip four, use different tools for the same job. If you're digging up a new bed, switch between a large shovel and a small trowel. The task you're completing is the same, but you'll be using different parts of your body in different ways, so you're less likely to get fatigued in one area. Tip five, carry stuff. Carry water in buckets or haul your loads of plants, sod, compost, etc. in your arms. And sure, one wheelbarrow trip can make it easier, which is another way of saying one wheelbarrow trip can use less movement to bring a load. But if the load's too big for your arms, try taking more trips across the yard before you resort to a wheelbarrow. And speaking of those trips, tip six is vary your carry. Always hold on one side of your body. You need to mix it up. And I'm not only talking fertilizer. Tip seven, find your hips. No matter what you've heard, bending at the spine is fine, but only being able to bend from the spine, not having much movement at the hips and doing lots of repetitive spine bending can leave you feeling achy. To say this another way, you want to make sure that your lower back isn't the only tool that you have in your gardening toolbox. Go to the show notes. Check out this embedded YouTube video that has a quick bending form makeover for more butt, more hips, more posterior side of your body, and less back use. Tip eight, bury your landscape. Grow some tall things. Go for some seven-foot pea varieties to naturally fit in reaching and stretching sessions as you set up trellises, prune, or harvest. And again, I'm going to jump outside of the article to say that when you're setting up a garden, if you're trying to grow movement, you're going to want a lot of different plant shapes because each one of those plant shapes moves you uniquely. So I like to look for tall things and we're trying to figure out what other tall things could we grow just to add in the reaching. And we came up with taller plant ideas where those plants wouldn't have necessarily made it into the garden if we weren't thinking about not only the dietary nutrients from our garden, but the mechanical ones as well. Tip nine, don't let gardening be your only movement for the day. One of the reasons many get stiff after a day in the garden is that it's our one long dynamic movement session per week. 
See if you can incorporate more movement throughout your life. Add small walks throughout the day. Walk part of the way to work or grab your morning coffee. Sit on the floor more often rather than on the furniture to keep your hips and knees supple throughout the week. And carry more items to keep your arms strong enough to schlep soil. Tip 10. Invite your friends to help. Adding a bit of community is my favorite way to cross-train because it broadens the impact of my movement beyond my personal physical benefits. Now my movement is social time, and I'm not only spreading my toes in the dirt, I'm spreading the love and eventually the zucchini. Today's show closes with an essay taken from the Food Moves section of my award-winning book, Movement Matters, essays on movement science, movement ecology, and the nature of movement. Kitchen Movement Although we've been able to outsource the work necessary to meet some of our biological needs, we haven't been able to outsource all of it. Because humans evolved performing the same general movements at the same general frequencies for thousands of years, and because these movements are part of what determines and maintains our structure, these general, traditional movements could be considered an essential part of our anatomy in that our bodies would be different without them. Movement is a renewable resource, but unlike other commodities, it renews through use. Your future movement is made possible by movements you're doing today— And so as we spend less and less of our movement on our personal food consumption, we're essentially spending tomorrow's movement on the luxury of being still today. In 5, 10, or 20 years, if you decide you want to start moving more for your health or happiness, you may find that your knees no longer feel good when you climb hills, that your hips creak and protest when you walk, that your feet can't support you without increasingly structured shoes. And even if you've spent your food-procuring movement on non-food movements, someone, somewhere, is doing the movements necessary to make your food, or fueling the machines that do the work, or cutting the forests, or mining the earth to make the machines, or fuel. The privilege of being able to outsource essential movements for preferred ones creates a burden on others and on the planet. We've been told we can vote with our dollars to support more ethical business practices, but what if we also performed simple movements to consume less overall? When you move your body more directly for your food, it not only serves your own body, but also makes you personally less of a contributor to the problems of unnecessary oil consumption, slave labor, mistreatment of farm workers, production of unnecessary items and the destruction of the planet. Our historical outsourcing of movement over and over again for hundreds of years has led us to where we are right now with respect to the amount of movement you and I need to do in order to eat. Where we once spent hours each day exchanging the movements involved in walking, running, bending, squatting, carrying, pounding, rubbing, lifting, digging, and mashing for a day's worth of calories We spend almost no movement, and lots of money on fuel, to drive to a store and wander the aisles to buy overly packaged food, foraged, planted, picked, dug, processed, and flown or driven there by other people. One could argue that movement for food is no longer essential, but I guess that depends on your definition of essential. You have an eating requirement. 
you have a movement requirement and you have a requirement not to place copious work on others in your tribe if you want that tribe to succeed. After all, their success is also yours. You have a need, one could say, to pull your own weight when it comes to food. I'm not saying you have to give up your coconut flour and almond milk, but what if you looked at engaging with your food mechanically as a way to not only increase your movement, but also decrease your reliance on electricity or the food industry, even if only in a small way? You can grow some of your own food. It's hard to be still in a garden or forage, even just a tiny bit. Buying nuts in their shells and spending an hour or so sitting on the ground or squatting to crack them open with rocks is a movement-filled lesson in how food grows for little ones. Swap out one electrical device for an old-fashioned equivalent where no electricity is needed. Not because you're a Luddite, but because you've listed move more and consume less fossil fuel as goals. Somebody's grandmother used to beat egg whites into a meringue with a fork. You're going to get whipped by somebody's grandmother because your arms get too tired? Walk to the local grocery store. And do I have to say bring your own bags? Or learn how to butcher your own meat. Make your own jerky, fruit leather, wine, beer, or bread. Pick your own vegetables and lay your own eggs. I'm just kidding about the eggs. Or you can do none of these things. Simply learning to recognize your own choices in the matter and to see how you relate to the bigger picture can be impactful. Awareness, after all, is its own nutrient. Again, that was Essay Kitchen Movement from my book, Movement Matters, which I'm sort of bragging right now, but won an Indie Gold Award for Best Essays in 2017. You can find the book on audible.com and the paperback on my website or wherever fine books are sold. Thanks, everyone for spending a little time with me today. We covered a lot of ground. Get it? I can see you nodding. Until next time, friends, grow something, even if it's just an intention. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such.